Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Church, it is so good to be home. Went on vacation. There's no place like home. It's great to be back. So good to be back. Great to see you wherever you're gathering with us from. We're glad you gathered our last Sunday of the six-month series, line by line, through the book of Daniel. I'm like disappointed. It's over. I promise we're going to do something new next week, okay? Don't worry. We're not going to be done forever, but I've really enjoyed the study of the book of Daniel. Today we're going to land it. We're going to end it. One more study, one more sermon from Daniel chapter 12. This morning, I want to give a shout out to a good friend, Pastor Adam, who pastors the Marion Baptist Church in Marion, South Carolina. They have been studying the book of Daniel with us for the last few months. Give it up right now for Adam and the church that he pastors. Been tuning in for our study of the book of Daniel. Adam, thank you for the way you pastor and love the bride of Christ. So we were on vacation, uh, went to downtown Chicago for three days where we did all the tour stuff that's there, including all the various museums. One of the coolest things I saw was this right here. This is a striding lion. It's on display at the Oriental Institute on the campus of the University of Chicago. Now this is not a replica, this is the real deal. This is one of 120 striding lions that actually lined the streets of ancient Babylon built by Nebuchadnezzar. 120 of these striding lions lined the street leading through the Ishtar Gate. And what was amazing to me as I stood there looking at this, this lion, Laying eyes on it for the first time is that this, this very lion, 2,500 years ago, Daniel himself would have laid his eyes on to see personally what Daniel would have seen 500 years B.C. Now, I'm telling you that because we study the book of Daniel, we need to remember this is real history. This really happened. It's about real people and real events and real places. But as we study the book of Daniel, remember, it's more than just history. It's also prophecy. As we study the past, it helps us understand the present and most of all, look forward to the future. And did you know that as we study biblical prophecy and the signs related to the second coming of Christ, that it is one of the number one themes of the Bible, that Jesus will come and establish a kingdom that will be without end. And so from Chicago, we actually drove up to upstate Michigan, and we actually vacationed on Mackinac Island. Now, Mackinac Island is a place I've never been, never thought I would go. It's a little four-mile square piece of real estate. It's an island in the middle of Lake Huron, of the Great Lakes, and kind of sits in the strait between the lower peninsula and upper peninsula of Michigan. And uh, so we were there for a day, because that's all you can afford. You can't afford more than a day on Mackinac Island, I'm just telling you. You know, you got to get off the island, or you won't have any money left to your name at all forever. So... But it was a thing of beauty. I'm telling you guys, it was weird. Like something was in the air. And everybody felt it. So we're going down the road and uh, the lawns are perfectly manicured and the flowers are blooming beautifully and it's super beautiful and sunny and, uh, you know, the temperature is a perfect 70 and there's no engines, no automobiles allowed anywhere on the island. The only way to get around is you either bike or you take a horse-drawn carriage. That's it. 
It's like a step back in time. And what was amazing to me about being there for the 24 hours we were is that everybody was happy. Families are everywhere. Kids are everywhere. And not one time did I hear a baby crying. Not one time did I see a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. I mean, you go to Silver Dollar City. <laughs> or, you know, Kansas City has a theme park called Worlds of Fun. And you go there, all kids are crying like, I don't know how much fun they're really having at Worlds of Fun. But this place, it's like amazing. All the families are happy. The kids are happy. It's like the world has forgotten Mackinac Island, and Mackinac has forgotten the world. No global pandemic, no global recession. It's like nobody was thinking about you know, world record inflation. Nobody was thinking about the war in Ukraine, all the warfare, the wickedness, the injustice. And what was amazing, on this little four square miles in the middle of the Great Lakes, it's like all the nations of the earth had come. I saw multiple ethnicities from around the world, both working and on vacation. And check it out. Everybody was happy, and there was a sense of harmony. And I've had very few perfect days in all my life, but this was like the perfect day. Total stranger comes up to me in the buffet line and breakfast, and she said the same thing. Like, this is weird. It's like something is in the air on Mackinac. Like, like there's just joy. And everybody's happy. And I thought to myself, this has to be in some way just a little shadow, just a little snippet of the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. When everything really is finally all well in the world and they all live happily ever after. Do you understand that is a theme of the Bible? The number one theme of the Bible is in fact the second coming of Christ, that Christ will establish a kingdom that will be without sin. He will reverse the curse on all of creation. And this kingdom that will be without sin will be without suffering, it'll be without warfare and wickedness. There will be no more death, destruction, depression. I'm trying to tell you there is a coming kingdom and that is the theme of the book of Daniel. Kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ will last forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. And we are living in the season of the second coming. And this is the theme of Scripture. Did you know that the second coming of Christ is one of the major themes of the Bible with over 2,400 verses describing the events of Christ's second coming? Now, most of the time, all our attention as Christians is on his first coming, the baby in the manger, the first incarnation. God became a man to become our sacrificial lamb. But did you know there's only 300 verses in the Bible related to his first coming, but 2,400 verses in the Bible describing the events of his second coming, because when Jesus comes again, it'll be the fulfillment of God's plan for man from the moment he put Adam in a garden and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The earth is going to be filled with the children of God, everyone bearing the image of God. It's going to be a perfect place. It's going to be a world full of perfect people and a perfect relationship with a perfect God. And no, it's not going to be 24 hours on Mackinac Island because it will never ever end. It'll be without end. And that's why we've been studying the book of Daniel. Because see, Daniel gives us hope in the middle of the scope of impending apocalypse. Chad preached a message last week. I'm so thankful for Chad Glover. Like when I'm not here, I always miss being here, but I know the church is in good hands when Chad preaches. Amen? In good hands. He preached a message out of Daniel 12 on the coming tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, and, and what he said was this, it's going to get worse before it gets better. 
It is. The Bible describes the last seven years before Jesus returns. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But the good news is there's good news in the middle of all the bad news. As we get closer now to the time of Christ's return, many of the prophecies related to his second coming will be unsealed and their fulfillment revealed. And this is what God knelt tells Daniel, who's now writing from Babylon in the 5th century B.C. If, if you've just joined us, Daniel was a captive of Nebuchadnezzar, led into captivity in 605 BC. It was there he would spend the next 70 years of his life in captivity, and it was there that God would give him one vision after another of the future. These prophecies related to Christ's second coming. And look at how he tells Daniel to, to close out this book in Daniel. Daniel 12 and verse 9, he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed to the time of the end. Meaning, Daniel, what I've given you, no one's going to understand really until the time of the end. Uh, these prophecies are sealed until the time of the end. And only once it's the time of the end will they be unsealed and subsequently revealed. Meaning, past generations of Christians read the book of Daniel and a lot of it went right over the top of their head. It was sealed. But now we're living at the time of the end. The closer we get to the time of the second coming, more and more of these prophecies are going to start coming together. I've told you, biblical prophecy is like putting together a thousand piece puzzle. You got all these pieces in front of you, they're in the Bible, 2,400 verses. Verses. There's the pieces of the picture of the time of the end, but it's only toward the time of the end that the pieces will all start coming together, meaning now we can understand as we read the book of Daniel more than any generation before. Listen carefully. As members of the kingdom, we ought to be watching, ready, and anticipating the return of the king. We ought to be watching, ready, and anticipating the return of the king because we can say emphatically, that we are living in the season of the second coming. There are certain biblical prophecies that had to be fulfilled, revealed, unsealed, before Jesus could come again. And no other generation of Christians before us could say that they could really be the generation that Jesus could return because so many of these prophecies lay dormant century after century. And I wanna give you four things today, four reasons today that we can say emphatically that we are living in the season of the second coming. The apostle Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, but you brethren are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. Now remember, Jesus said, I come as a thief in the night, meaning when he returns, he's not gonna send you a text ahead of time. Right? You're not gonna get a prompt on your phone. Hey, get ready, I'm coming two weeks from today. Not gonna happen. A thief does not call ahead and tell you, hey, I'm coming tomorrow night. All right, Jesus was saying, I'm coming as a thief, meaning I'm going to come unannounced, completely unnoticed. Unpre most people will be unprepared. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, his own disciples were asking him, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? What did he say? Guys, not for you to know the time. But my Father in heaven alone knows the time. No one's going to know the day or the hour. On the other hand, what Paul said is we don't have to be taken by surprise. We won't know the day or the hour of his coming, but we can say emphatically we are living in the season. We are living in the time. And the reality is we're not in darkness as children of the light. We're not children of the night. What the apostle Paul is saying, you don't have to be surprised. 
And I want to give you four reasons why we can be watching, anticipating, and awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you really believe that he is in fact coming, and everything he said is true, and is true for you, listen, it ought to change us. This is not just new cool information so we can go deeper theologically, and we can win in Bible trivia and impress everybody with our knowledge. No, it ought to change us. It ought to transform us. Biblical prophecy ought to make us live with greater urgency for the things of eternity, to live with increasingly kingdom priorities instead of the things that are temporary. I want to give you four things. The reason we know Christ and his coming is near. Number one is this, the rebirth of Israel as a nation. The rebirth of Israel as a nation. Now, this is one of the super signs Jesus himself gave in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is the very famous Olivet Discourse, his last sermon that he would preach. Uh, He has prophesied the destruction of the temple. Uh, Now his disciples have come to him and said, Jesus, uh, how will we know that your coming is near? Give us the signs of the end and the sign of your coming. And so Matthew 24, he begins giving the events of the tribulation, the signs of the second coming. And one of those signs he gave in Matthew 24 is the parable of the fig tree beginning in verse 32. Look at this. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. Now the fig tree in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is a symbol of the national life of Israel. Now, don't confuse that with the olive tree. In Romans chapter 11, the apostle Paul would use the olive tree as a symbol of the spiritual life of Israel. But the fig tree is a symbol of the national life of Israel. So what we have here is a parable about the nation of Israel. It says this, when its branches already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near, so you also, when you see all these things, the events of the tribulation that Jesus has just described, he said, know that it, the second coming, is near even at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, he said there's a sign of the second coming. When you see the fig tree put on leaves, you know that summer is near. Fig trees are very common in ancient Israel as they are in modern Israel. Uh, and so one of the signs that summer was coming to Israel was when the fig trees were put on leaves. In the same way in our part of the world, in the Midwest of the U.S., when you see the daffodils start to bloom, you know spring is in the air and summer is near. That's a sign. Uh, It's coming out of a long, cold winter. When you see the forsythia begin to bloom, you know that spring is in the air and summer is near. Forsythia is the very first bush that blooms early in the spring. How many of you know what forsythia is? How many of you are amazed that I know what forsythia is? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm a flower child. It's a little known thing about Pastor Phil. I like flowers. You get my wife flowers, I appreciate them too. (laughs) Don't get me flowers, that would be weird. Forsythia is the first blooming bush in the spring. It's a sign in this part of the world that spring is in the air, summer must be near. Jesus is saying, when you see the fig leaves begin to bloom and the leaves begin to bud, you know that summer is near. In the same way, you know the second coming is near. Now remember, this is a parable. He's saying it's an allegory. In some way, this is a symbol of Israel. Now what you need to know is that a few days before he taught this in Matthew 24, he actually cursed the fig tree. Just three 
chapters earlier, Matthew 21, 19, and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. What Jesus was doing in cursing the fig tree is prophetically he was foreshadowing the nation of Israel and their condition is that they were going to wither away as a nation because they were about to crucify their Messiah. They had the appearance of life. There were leaves on the tree, but it did not bear fruit. There was no possibility of spiritual fruit because they were crucifying the Jewish Messiah. John 1.11, he came to his own, but his own received him not. Consequently, they were going to weather away and die as a nation. Now, 500 years before Christ, another prophet in the same city of Babylon, known as Ezekiel, prophesied exactly the same thing. Ezekiel was a contemporary of Daniel. Daniel led away in 605 BC. Ezekiel led away by the Babylonians in 597 BC. Look what Ezekiel says, 500 and some years BC. Then they shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them throughout the countries. God was prophesying because you lived in rebellion against me and you crucified the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to let you be scattered among other nations. I'm going to disperse you among other peoples. You will die as a nation. The Jews will be a people without a place. This prophecy was fulfilled specifically in 135 AD when the Romans scattered the Jews out of the ancient land of Israel and scattered them among other nations. They got tired of one Jewish insurrection after another. Remember in 70 AD, they came to put down a Jewish rebellion and they drove the Jews out of Jerusalem, but they allowed them to stay in the land. This time they came, they said, we are done dealing with the Jews. We are driving you out of the land of Israel. And legally, the Jews could not return. In 135 AD, prophecy fulfilled and that's where they stayed century after century after century after century from 135 A.D. In fact, the Romans changed the name of the land from Israel to Palestine, which is still used sometimes today. They were trying to erase the memory completely of the Jews ever having been in that ancient land. Palestine is the same word as Philistine or Philistine, which was also an ancient people group competing for the promised land that God had promised the Jews. And that is why today you have Palestinians living in the land of Palestine, the ancient land of Israel. Now here's what's amazing to me, no ancient people anywhere in history were scattered among other people that remained a distinct ethnicity for century after century after century after century. The Jews alone can say that they still have a distinct identity even after being scattered abroad among other nations for centuries. You know why? Because God made a promise because of the rebellion, the fig tree is going to wither away and die. But one day he promised that fig tree that had died is going to give new life. It's going to come alive. It's going to be reborn. Look at what he says in Ezekiel eleven sixteen. another prophecy. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble 
assemble you from the countries. Now check this out. This prophecy, written 500 years B.C., was fulfilled November the 2nd, 1917. What happens? At the end of World War I, the British army meets the Ottoman Turks in battle in a valley, not coincidentally, the Valley of Armageddon. <laughs> you see, the Holy Land, the ancient land of Israel, had been under Ottoman control for 500 years. These two armies meet in battle in the Valley of Armageddon. The Ottoman Turks are defeated by the British. Now the ancient land of Israel becomes a British colony. It's under British control. November the 2nd, 1917, the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, Lord Balfour, signs the Balfour Declaration, and for the first time since 135 AD, the Jews are legally allowed to return to the land of their forefathers exactly as God promised. I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries from which I have sent you. I'm telling you, church, we can trust what God has said. He will do exactly what he promised he will do. It's amazing to me. And what's amazing to me is people think, well, you know, it, you know, men, you know the Bible's just a work of men. Men, it's not the work of God. He's not the author. I mean, it's outdated, antiquated. I mean, wait a minute. Men aren't smart enough to do this stuff. Only God could do this stuff. It was at the end of World War I that the Jews regathered, but they still were not a nation. It was the end of World War II where they would be reborn as a nation. End of World War I, they regathered in the land. He says, I will gather you from the people and assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. This prophecy fulfilled on May the 15th, 1948, when Israel was reborn as a nation. What is a super sign that we are in the season of the second coming? Israel is back on the map. After almost 1,900 years of not being a nation, they are reborn as a nation, and the fig tree has put on leaves that had formerly withered away and died. It was reborn, and today it is alive. Jesus said, now learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see the leaves that are yet tender... And that fig tree is blossoming and it's budding. You know that summer is near. Even so, when you see the fig tree come back to life, you know that the second coming is near, even at the doors. Then he said these words, surely this generation will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled, all the things related to the tribulation, the events around the second coming. So what was he saying? Well, the big debate among scholars and theologians is what is a biblical a generation. Some argue for 70 years, some argue for 120 years. My personal opinion, that's all this is because nobody can say emphatically for sure. My personal opinion is that a generation is still alive while one person from that generation is still alive. When the last person from that generation has died, that generation has now died. Gener uh, Jesus was teaching that this generation, born in 1948, would still be alive to see the events of Matthew 24 related to the second coming. So, if you were born in 1948, how old are you? It's okay, we can all do the math. We know how old you are. Yeah, you're 72, going on 73, yes. Let's be clear, you are not old. Somebody laughed. 
One person said amen. Let's be clear, you are not old. Okay, I'm nowhere near 73, but the older I get, the more I know. That is not old, church. It's not old. No, you got a lot of living to do, all right? You do. But you ain't young. No, you're no spring chicken either, let's be honest. Theoretically, that generation could still be alive for, let's say, another 30 years, yes? Some of them will live to be 100. Probably nobody here. I hope you know Jesus. Here's the point. The implication Jesus was making is that sometime in the next 30 years, roughly speaking, he will come again. That generation will still be alive to witness the events that he's describing in Matthew chapter 24. Why do we know we're in the season of the second coming? Israel's back on the map. They were reborn, not just regathered, but they have been rebirthed as a nation. The fig tree is now budding. Number two is this, the explosion of human knowledge and technology. Human knowledge and technology. I want you to see what God tells Daniel as he's giving him this, this last prophecy in Daniel chapter 12, verse four. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Like he's given Daniel these amazing prophecies and these amazing visions. And it's like God says, oh yeah, and one more thing. Let me give you just this, this little parenthesis here. Just a couple things to consider. Toward the time of the end, people will run to and fro. Let me ask you, do you ever feel like you're running to and fro? <laughs> Only recently in human history do people run to and fro. Like in the last two weeks, I have flown to Houston, Texas, where I preach, flew back to Kansas City. Then I drove up to Cedar Falls, Iowa, where I preach, drove back to Kansas City, caught the Amtrak train to Chicago, Illinois, where I vacationed for three days, rented a car, drove up to Mackinac Island, where we vacationed, drove back to Chicago, Illinois, where we caught the train, got back to my house at two o'clock in the morning last night. I mean, I'm just being honest with you. The train, we'd never done this before. Hey, this is gonna be a new experience. This is gonna be fun. <laughs> Guys, I'm telling you, metaphorically speaking, the train ride was a train wreck. <laughs> if I'm stuttering and stamming, slurring my speech, I haven't been drinking, I haven't slept. Okay, I'm just telling you, two and a half hours sleep. Not trying for you to feel sorry for me, I'm not looking for sympathy. Actually, yes, I am. Feel sorry for me, okay? <laughs> yeah. Here's the point I'm trying to make. In the last two weeks, I have traveled more miles by plane, train, or automobile than the average human being did in a lifetime, just a generation ago. Yes, there's always been the explorers, and yes, there was always the commercial caravans that would travel hundreds of miles, but the average human being for century after century lived and died basically within a five-mile radius their entire life. Only recently are we running to and fro. Like, I'm telling you, you ever feel like you need to take a vacation because you got back from vacation? Yeah, Man, there's something to this. Now, now the, this is what I want to talk about, though. Look at this. Knowledge shall increase... And what is remarkable, knowledge throughout the scope of human history stayed roughly basically the same. 
century after century after century. Yes, there's been times of enlightenment. The Romans, for ancient people, were amazing engineers and had lots and lots of knowledge. A lot of that knowledge was lost in the Dark Ages. And then if you know your history, you had the Renaissance Age, where a lot of that knowledge was regained. But generally speaking, life stayed the same because there was no increase in knowledge. Yet, yet Daniel says uh, toward the time of the end, there's going to be an explosion of knowledge. Knowledge will increase. And I want you to see that until recently, the world remained largely unchanged for centuries with very little advancement in human knowledge from one generation to the next until really, really recently. And there have been those that have tried to put this on a bar graph. And so let me do my best to try to describe. In 1845, uh, if you were going to put knowledge and the amount of knowledge on a bar graph, the combined knowledge of mankind in 1845 would have been about one inch high. Everybody do this. That's about how much knowledge had been accumulated by humanity by 1845. Now, over the next century, by 1945, knowledge had tripled. So if you're going to compare 1845 to 1945, the combined knowledge of mankind, now you've got about three inches of combined knowledge compared to one inch of knowledge, but something began happening mid 20th century. About the same time, Israel became a nation. No, I don't think that's a coincidence. Mid 20th century, knowledge began exploding. So that by 1975, if you're going to put this on a bar graph, by 1975, compared to 1845, knowledge would stand 525 feet in the air compared to one inch. Knowledge is today doubling every two years. Today, in the year 2022, if you're going to put this on a bar graph and compare it to 1845, what you would have is 22,200 feet. Actually, that says 28,200 feet. Think about that. Compared to 1845 today, 28,200 feet. In downtown Chicago, I went to an observation deck on the 94th floor. It felt like I was 15 miles high. Guess what? I was only a little over 1,000 feet in the air. Think about a skyscraper, not 1,000 feet high, but 28,000 feet high. And you begin to get a scope for the amount of knowledge that is now attainable. Think about this for just a moment. You have more knowledge available to you in the next one hour on the internet than previous generations could have accumulated in an entire lifetime. You see, knowledge has indeed increased. Human knowledge began exploding mid-20th century and is now doubling every two years. That's the nature of knowledge and technology now in this information age where there's so much knowledge now accessible. Siri has made everybody smarter. Really, Google it. And you know what? Daniel saw this 2,500 years ago. Indeed, Knowledge has increased, and it's a sign of the second coming. Now, the third thing is this, the revival of the Roman Empire. Go back months and months ago now, way, way, way back to Daniel chapter 2. You remember Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in his dream he sees an image of a man. And Daniel interprets this dream 
as four successive world empires that would rise and fall. You had this image of a man. This head of gold was the Babylonians. The chest and arms of silver was the Medo-Persians. Then you had the belly and thighs of brass that was the Greek empire. And then it had legs of iron, the Roman empire. Historically and biblically, iron has always been associated with Rome, the Roman empire. And then on those legs of iron, you had 10 toes of iron mixed with clay. Those 10 toes speak of a revived or reborn Roman empire at the time of the end, a 10-nation confederation. And we're watching, if you're watching the geopolitical events of just the last 10 and 20 years, you are watching the world platform being positioned with all the props and all the players for the revival of the Roman Empire. Nobody could have fathomed it at the end of World War II that the nations of Europe would come together. They had been at war with each other. Europe was tattered and torn by war. They were age-old enemies. These nations had fought each other for centuries. But in 1957, there was something called the Treaty of Rome where these same nations that were once at war with each other signed a treaty with one another. In a BBC documentary, the Secretary General of NATO said these words after signing the Treaty of Rome, quote, we felt like Romans on that day. We were consciously recreating the Roman Empire. It's almost like these people have read the Bible. <laughs> now the irony is I guarantee they haven't read the Bible and their theology is not that sophisticated. But historically, God has used even unbelieving people who don't believe the Bible to actually fulfill the Bible. He says, we actually felt like Romans on that day. We were consciously recreating the Roman Empire. Rome associated with iron. Now, you may not know what this is, but this is a diagram of an atomium iron molecule. This is what it looks like when you diagram it. Now, here's what I want you to see. Absolutely remarkable today. The first thing visitors see as they enter Brussels, Belgium, the capital of the EU, is a 335-foot monument of an iron molecule. This monument was built and fabricated in 1958 to commemorate the Treaty of Rome and it was actually built and put in place for the World's Fair of 1958. And as you fly into Brussels, Belgium, what you see is a 335-foot monument. It's actually a building. You can go up in there and explore it. A 335-foot monument of an iron molecule. I'm telling you, it's like they have read the Bible. But I don't think they have. I don't think they could possibly know what they're actually doing, except God knows exactly what he's doing. Now, there's one last thing I want to share with this. Number four is this, the rise of Babylon. Remember what we said week one, Babylon, that word in your Bible, is found over 260 times. It's a very important word. It's a very important uh, uh, center of attention, and God is showing you something with that word every time it's used. 
And historically, Babylon was a great and ancient city, a wicked, wicked city. The ruins are still there today, 50 miles south of Baghdad on the Euphrates River. By Daniel's day, it was one of the largest and greatest commercial centers and political centers of the ancient world. Historians tell us first city ever to reach 200,000 in population. But more times than not in the Bible, when you see the word Babylon, it's not a reference to the ancient city, but rather it's a symbol of evil. Revelation 17, you have Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That's the description of the end times church, the end times religion. Revelation 18, you have the fall of commercial Babylon, a world system economically and commercially. Revelation 17, Revelation 18 records the destruction and God's judgment on religious Babylon and commercial Babylon. And I want you to understand the implication in the Bible, Babylon symbolizes a satanically driven, wicked world system that will unify the nations, those ten toes of iron and clay, and they will unify in opposition to God's kingdom. Remember, Babylon began in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11 with a man known as Nimrod. His name means rebel. And he says in Genesis 11, let us build a city and a tower that will reach into heaven and build a name for our You see, this rebel was leading a rebellion. It was in opposition to God's kingdom. Babel is Bab-El, gate of God. They were trying to be God, living in the face of God. We don't need God. We will build a kingdom of men, and in so doing, we will usher in the kingdom of heaven. But all history records is the kingdom of men is not the kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom of sin, a kingdom of suffering again and again, and again and again. And I would suggest that we are right back today in the 21st century where Nimrod was 4,500 years B.C., the Tower of Babel. They had a unified language, and they had a unified leader. Today the world is unified with a common language. What do computers speak? Languages. All that's left is a common leader to unite the nations in a kingdom of men that is in direct opposition and rebellion to the kingdom of heaven. Now again, not so coincidentally, though I don't know that it could have been on purposely, but I do think it's providentially, one of the official posters and symbols of the European Union is this right here, this poster. And on this poster, it's, 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 it's made uh, in, the, in the image of a painting by a Dutch Renaissance artist by the name of Peter Bruegel, who had a very famous painting, The Tower of Babel. It's one of the official posters of the EU. And I don't know, you probably can't read this, but what it says is this, Europe, many tongues, one voice. You see, 4,500 years ago, God scattered the nations among languages because they were a danger to themselves. God came down and put down this little rebellion because he said in Genesis chapter 11, now nothing they imagine to do will be withheld from them. He had to dumb us down. And every single century since, we've been trying to get back together. And one day soon, we will. And I want you to notice, this is almost like a kind of a, just a backhanded slap at the Bible, a backhanded slap at God. They know exactly the implication. Europe, many tongues, one voice. 
God, we know what we're doing. Here's the painting that they designed this poster around. We don't know for sure what the Tower of Babel looked like, but in this artist's mind's eye, this is what he painted, very famous painting of the Tower of Babel. Not only that, when they designed the parliament building of the European Union, they designed it specifically around the Tower of Babel. I'm telling you, history is ending right where it began. The kingdom of men in the face of God, opposition, rebellion. What do we do? Luke 21, 28, Jesus said, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When you see all these signs of the second coming, understand there is hope beyond the scope of impending apocalypse. Apocalypse simply means unveiling. We've kind of hijacked the meaning of apocalypse. You know, we, we think of apocalypse being doom and gloom and the end of the world and we're all gonna die. But understand, apocalypse simply means unveiling as you see these prophecies being unveiled and being unsealed and being revealed, Jesus simply said, remember, there is good news and a world full of bad news. Look up because your redemption draws near. He said, I'm coming back. I'm coming again. There is hope beyond the scope of impending apocalypse. Jesus is our hope. Sweet friend, I pray that you have Jesus as your hope. If you have never placed your faith in him personally, today is the day. He died for your sin, he rose again to redeem you from the curse of sin. And the winds of the last days are beginning to blow. He is the rock of ages. And if you're not hanging on to the rock, there's a really good chance you're gonna get blown away. The good news is this, paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. The Bible comes full circle. It ends right where it began. This is God's promise. Revelation 22, five. When Jesus comes and establishes that kingdom, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever, and ever and ever. A little over two years ago, I was going through a very, very difficult and dark time in my own life. Somebody sent me an email, one line, Pastor Phil, the night is almost over. They attached a link to the song that you're about to hear, and it ministered so deeply to me and I pray as you sit and listen, it will minister to you too. In this world full of warfare and bloodshed and wickedness and injustice, a world full of evil, global recession, economy fragile as fine China, new and deadly diseases discovered almost every day. No, you can't escape to Mackinac Island. <laughs> There's something better. Hang on to this truth. The night is almost over. Jesus is coming again.
powers of the air are gonna give away The sky will roll, the mountains fade The redeemed of the king at the end of the age Sing a merit of the Lord, hasten the day To take the scroll, loose its seals Stars fall, earth reel The man with the scepter, the man with the sword The man of the cross will soon be crowned Lord in the night will soon be over And this night will soon be over So bow your knee and lift your eyes The only one worthy, the only one right His eyes are like fire and glory To Jerusalem as he rips his skies The blood of the Lamb will be our only hope The blaze and the fire and the blood and the smoke Fall upon nations, fall upon kings Preparing the way for the end of all things And this night will soon be over And this night will soon be over Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.